Okay, have our Bibles turn to Mark chapter 9. We're going to continue our study in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 9. We're going to be covering verses 14 through 29 this morning. So Mark 9, 14 through 29. And I'm actually I'm going to read it first this morning. So as you're turning there, Mark 9, 14 through 29. If, if you're not familiar with the Bible, there should be some in the front, in the pew front in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, we have some we'd love to give you to, to have. And um, to some of us who've grown up in the church, this may sound funny, but if, you, if you're looking at the Bible, the big numbers, those are the chapter numbers. Okay? And then the smaller numbers are the verses. And so when I say Mark 9, 14 through 29, it's Mark chapter 9, big number 9, and then little numbers 14 through 29. And so you can follow along as I read beginning in Mark 9, 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed, and they ran up to him and greeted him. And he, that is Jesus, he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth, and it becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground, and he rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Verse 23, and Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and he said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. Verse 27, But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, what, why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Well, this, this story this morning, it, it picks up right on the heels of what happened last week. And so if you remember last week, we, we came off of a true mountaintop experience. So we had the transfiguration on the top of the mountain. Jesus was transfigured. He, his majesty, his glory was, was clearly evident to, to the other disciples who were up there. They had seen Moses and Elijah. They would heard the voice of the Father from the heavens saying, Listen to him, this is my son. They were in awe and they were, they were amazed, fearful, amazed at what they saw. And so if there were, ever was a scene portraying the, the power of, of Jesus, it was, it was on the top of that mountain. And so Peter, James, and John, they're, they're on, on the mountaintop, literally and figuratively, as they make their way back down. And as they descend, they immediately come across a situation that is drastically different. These, these two experiences are drastically different. Now, now, I don't know if that'll come out in the picture, okay, it's not the best quality, but, but that is a picture 
a painting done by the Italian painter Raphael. And this is the, the last painting that he ever did, and it's called the Transfiguration. And in the picture, so, so you may have to go home and, and look it up, but, but in the picture, okay, the, the, the scene is divided into, pretty clearly into two halves. So at the top, there, there's Jesus okay, in the middle with his arms raised, and then there's Moses and Elijah right beside him. Then, I don't know if you can see it, but there's, there's the other three disciples covering themselves on the ground uh, in light of, of the majesty, the, the vision of Jesus that they're seeing. So that's the top half. But then at the very same time, at the bottom half of the picture, down the mountain, okay, is, is the depiction of our scene this morning. And so you see there's, there's finger pointing and, and there's arguing. that You can almost hear them arguing. And there's a boy who who's, who's, looks like his arms are flail, flailing in the middle of the scene. And so there's chaos down at the bottom. It's quite an involved painting. And so what we get when we read the scene this morning, in light of what we read last week, the, these two events, they're, they're worlds apart, but they're happening at the same place. One's at top of the mountain, one's at the bottom. And so when the disciples come down with Jesus, the majesty of the mountaintop is quickly overshadowed by, by unbelief, really, at the bottom of the mountain. And I think, again, just like I mentioned last week, that Mark is wanting us as we're reading this, to think back to the Exodus 34 account. You remember I mentioned that last week, Exodus 34 is where, Jesus, where, where Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. Do you remember when he's up meeting face-to-face with God, getting the Ten Commandments, do you remember what's happening at the bottom of the mountain in Exodus? Do you remember what Aaron and the Israelites are doing? Does, does golden calf ring a bell? So, so here we have the top of the mountain, this, this majestic experience. And at the bottom, there's, there's unbelief, there's idolatry, there's, there's people saying, this is God, this, this gold calf that just came out of this fire, this is the one who delivered us. And so there's unbelief. And so in our, our story this morning, the disciples take part, and in, in we're to see them as, as the unbelieving generation. In fact, Jesus refers to them as that. But, but they're to be identified with the, the Israelites who are foolishly worshiping uh, a, a golden calf, unbelief, characterized by unbelief. And so the, the question that we have to ask this morning as we come to this passage is, is why? Why does Mark have this account here? Why, why does this event take place after the transfiguration, right on the heels of the transfiguration? Now, I, I don't think Mark's, Mark's intention is simply to give us another miracle account. Right? Remember the first half of Mark, we had, we had account after account after account of, of these types of miracles. I don't think that's Mark's intention here. Rather, I think this encounter has discipleship as its main emphasis. Think about, think about discipleship, that, that, the, the theme of discipleship that we've seen since the end of chapter 8, when, when Jesus clearly says that we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and, and you're coming with me. And if you want to follow me, take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. So he, he's talking about discipleship, and it's going to be costly, and you're going to follow him. And so he, the theme is discipleship and the suffering that it entails. And so here, the, the theme is that discipleship, you, you have to have faith. Faith is ne- necessary or essential to discipleship. I think that's, that's the main point, that discipleship requires faith. And so hopefully, hopefully that will become clear as, as we walk through this account. This account shows that the disciples still have a lot to learn. They are, in fact, the unbelieving generation with the scribes, whereas before, scribes are bad, disciples are good. Here in this account, disciples are with the scribes as, as bad as the unbelieving generation. So we'll see that in a second. And so, in fact, it's not the disciples who, who we're to emulate or, or who, who's, who's lifted up as an example of faith, but it's the boy's father. If anyone is to be emulated, it's him. And he's not even that great of a picture. He lacks faith, but, but at the end of the day, 
he recognizes the necessity of faith. And so we'll look at his cry. So, so I've broken this down. We'll, we'll walk through this. There, there's four sections. So, so we'll look first, the, the argument, okay, verses 14 through 19. Then, then second, the dialogue, verses 20 to 24, the dialogue between Jesus and the, and the boy's father. Then we have the actual exorcism, when Jesus actually cast out this demon. And then lastly, the lesson, where, where Jesus and the disciples are in the privacy of a home, and then there's that interaction, which I think is the, the primary point of, of this, the lesson that, that Jesus wants them to learn. So let's look first, the argument, verses 14 through 19. So, so look there at 14. When they came to the disciples, so that's Jesus and the three, they come down, they saw a great crowd around them, and, and they saw the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, they were amazed, and they ran up and they greeted him. And so they, they come to Jesus, he says, he says what's going on? What, why, why, why are you arguing? What, what's, what's the deal? And someone from the crowd, in fact, the father who will, who will become the, the main point at the end of this, he answered him, I, I brought my son. Um, he, he has a spirit and, and he's, been, he's been possessed for a long time. And, and I, I came to you hoping that you could fix it, but, but you weren't here. And so your disciples tried to, to do what I came to seek and they couldn't do it. And so there's an argument going on when they, they step on the scene between the disciples and the scribes. Now, Mark doesn't explicitly say what the argument is about, but, but I think it's pretty clear. I think it's obvious. Now, remember, Jesus, Peter, James, and John, they're all up on the mountain. A father comes looking for Jesus. He's got a, a possessed son. He comes looking for Jesus. Okay? We've seen, right, if you've been with us through Mark's gospel, there, there's no demon that's a match for Jesus. I mean, it, it's never a fair fight. Okay, and so he's looking for Jesus. And in fact, back in, in Mark 6, the disciples were sent out by Jesus with his authority, with his power to cast out demons. So the, the disciples themselves have actually successfully cast out demons and healed many sick people. It, it, it's Mark 6, 13 is, is where that happens. And so the disciples are there. Jesus is gone. Someone's coming looking for Jesus. And they think, look, here's our opportunity. Let us, let's flex our demon-conquering muscles. Jesus is gone, and those other three that always are talking and leading, they're gone too, so let's do it. This is our chance. Bring them here. Bring them here. Jesus isn't here, but, but good news for you. We're here. And so they come, and these self-confident disciples begin trying to do what they've seen Jesus do, and in fact, probably what they did in, in Mark chapter 6. They start trying to cast out this demon, but unlike prior times when Jesus does it and when they were successful, this time nothing happens. The Spirit doesn't leave the boy. They can't do what the father came hoping that they could do. They, they can't do it. They're failures. They failed. And, and the longer they try, I assume, I assume they, they go one through nine. All right, you try. I think he said this one time. Okay, you try. No, no, no. And so as, the, as, it, as it time goes on, I'm sure that crowds are coming longer. What's going on here? And, and part of this crowd are some of Jesus' harshest, harshest critics, the scribes. And so the scribes are here watching what's going on, and, and they, they can't help themselves. They're, they're ecstatic. Look, look, they can't do it. They can't do it. Jesus is a fraud. His disciples are a fraud. They can't do it. And so I'm sure they start telling, well, maybe you should say this, or, or maybe try this, or, or, or this, or sorry, you, you lost your power. Whatever it is, the scribes are mocking and insulting the disciples, which then leads these self-confident disciples to take offense, and there's an argument that ensues. And so right about that time is when Jesus and the other three descend down the hill. They're arguing about why they can't do it. Maybe even the scribes jumped in on, on the action trying to cast out the demon. It, it doesn't say. All we know is there's an argument going on. When Jesus gets there, you see at the end of verse 15, when he gets there, all the attention shifts to him. Here they come down the mountain, they, they step up, and then everybody's quiet, and they look. And actually 15 says they, they run to him. 
And then verse, verse 19, so the father, they, they get there, Jesus says, what's going on? The father says exactly what happened. And then verse 19, we get Jesus' response. Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now, it's important, I, th- I think, as I mentioned, I think the them that Jesus is answering in verse 19, he answered them, I think that them includes the disciples. I think the scribes and the crowd and the boy's father, I think they're part of it, but I don't think the disciples are excluded because their failure is what's on center stage right now, and that's what's going to come up at the end. So they are part of the faithless generation. And so in his response, Jesus, to the disciples that are there and to the crowd and to the scribes, his, his frustration comes through, doesn't it? He's ministering in the midst of a faithless generation. So he asks two questions. How long am I to bear with you? How long am I to be with you? And so he sees this unbelief, and, and he's in anguish. And I don't think Jesus is saying, I wish I didn't have to deal with you guys anymore. I don't think that's his point. I think he's saying, time is running out, and you still aren't getting it. How long is it going to take you? So he's not saying, I wish, I wish you guys weren't here, but how long? In fact, Jesus knows his, his time is running short. And so notice at the end of verse 19 what, what Jesus says. It's amazing, isn't it? At the end of verse 19, in the midst of frustration and faithlessness, he doesn't turn away. He doesn't refuse and say, okay, I'm not doing this. But rather, instead, the, the patient, grace-filled Messiah says, bring him to me. Bring him to me. I'm here. I'm here. Bring him to me. I'm, I'm on a mission. Bring him to me. Bring the boy here. I mean, what, what an encouraging command. Where else could this father go? Where else could, could this boy find relief? Where, where else could he find freedom, life? Nowhere. Nowhere. The, 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 the source of life and freedom and relief was right there, and that source says, come on, bring him to me. Some of you here this morning, maybe you need to hear that word. Do you have a troubled loved one? Do you have a, a, a burden for someone in your care? Bring them to Jesus. Hear the words of them. Bring them to me. Bring them to me. Bring him to Jesus. Bring, bring her to Christ. There's, there's no one else to remedy whatever you're, whatever you're dealing with. So hear the words. Bring them to me, Jesus says. If you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, your place is with, is with the, the possessed boy this morning. Not, not, that you're, not that you're possessed and you're going to foam in the mouth or anything like that, but you're with the possessed boy in the sense that you can't relieve yourself. You, you can't solve your dilemma yourself. You, you can find no solutions from anyone else save Jesus Christ. No, no parent, no teacher, no pastor, no friend. No one can offer you what Jesus offers you. Your only hope is to to turn to Christ. And so if you're here not a Christian, my call to you would be go to Him. He, he calls you, come to me. He will turn none away. He'll turn none away. Well, here, moving back, getting back to our, 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 our passage, our text, we, we move into verses 20 to 24 because that's exactly what happens. Jesus says, bring him to me, and, and that's what the Father does. Bring him to me. Verse 20, they brought the, they brought the boy to Jesus. And when he saw the Spirit, it... it it convulsed the boy, and the boy falls on the ground, and he rolls about foaming at the mouth. And so, so they bring the boy there. Jesus doesn't even speak yet, and, and the, the Spirit immediately be, begins, begin, begins working in this boy. And so at this point, it'd, be, it'd, be, it'd make sense for Jesus to then, he gets there, he sees what's happening, and then him just casts out the demon, right? Be out, be gone. I, I command you to, to leave this boy. That would make sense, and we've seen that before. But instead of that, 
Jesus takes this opportunity to begin in dialogue with the Father, ask him questions about what's been going on. He draws out details of, of the specifics of what's going on, but he also draws out the lack of the Father's faith. Right? He continues this to, to point out the lack of the Father's faith. So look there in verse 21, that Jesus asked the Father, how long has it been happening? How long has this been happening? Well, it's from childhood, the Father says, and it's often cast him into a fire, into water to destroy him. So, so ever since he was a kid, we don't know how long, but, but ever since this boy was a child, he's, he's been experiencing these, these possessions, these fits, where, where this demon is attempting to destroy the son, throw him into fire or drown him. And so the Father, in explaining, gets to the end of himself at the end of verse 22 and says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and, and help us. If you can do anything, right? Jesus will address that. But notice how he says, have compassion on us. It's not just the boy that's suffering. Any parent here knows when, when a child suffers, it's not alone. So think about the suffering of this, of, this bull, of this man. Have compassion on us, Jesus, because this is wearing on me just as much as him. Have compassion on us. Help us. If you can do anything, Jesus says, if. If I can do anything. All things are possible in verse 23, Jesus says, for the one who believes. And so so dialogue immediately shifts from a focus on Jesus. So the man says, Jesus, if you can do something, do it, please. And it shifts from a focus on Jesus to a focus on the man. If I can, Jesus says, do do you know who I am? Do you know what just happened up on the top of this mountain? Do you know who who has sent me? Do you know what I came to do? Do you know who I am? Because if you knew who I was, Jesus says, you you would know that all things are possible for me. Nothing is impossible for me to do. Jesus' point here isn't that that faith can accomplish anything, so just believe in and and your wildest dreams will come true, but rather faith sets no limits for what God can do. So you don't say, well, if you can do this, you say, I know you can do this because you're God. This demon that's been plaguing your son for, for his entire life, Jesus says, it, it's no problem for me. The lack here in this situation, it, it's not my ability. That, that's not the problem, sir. The lack is with you. Right? He, he turns it back to the man. It's not about him. It's not about Jesus' inability. But rather, you lack faith. If, if I can do something, and the father immediately understands. He gets it just like that. Verse 24, immediately. He cries out what, what, what has become a calling card, a plea, a cry for struggling Christians down through the ages. Now, you've probably heard this before. Immediately the father cries out, I believe. Help my unbelief. And that's his cry. Help my unbelief. The boy's father is at the point where, where his faith is, is almost gone. He's almost had enough. He can't find relief. And he recognizes his unbelief. He cries out, help my unbelief. He's a, it's a cry for divine help. I know I'm unbelieving, Jesus. It's there. I recognize it. I'm struggling to believe. Help me. I mean, can we blame him? Can we blame him for for teetering on the edge of faith and unbelief? His entire life has been spent seeing his son plagued by this demon. His son has been on the brink of life and death. Every time this this demon possesses him, he thinks, is this the time my son's going to die? So it's in his son's entire life he's seen that. Now, Now he's finally come to Jesus, and the disciples can't help him. In fact, the, the, Jesus shows up and, and all that happens is he's possessed again. How can he have faith? It's in his weakness, the weakness of his faith, that he cries for help. Help my unbelief. So I want to pause here and make, make a point of application. And that's simply the, the power of faith in the midst of suffering. 
The power of faith in the midst of suffering. Specifically, personal suffering. I mean, I mean, think about faith in the midst of personal suffering is probably the most difficult thing, the most difficult situation. Personal suffering often is the, the most difficult time to have faith. I mean, seeing a loved one suffer has tendency to test our faith in ways that we, we wouldn't imagine. When we see a loved one suffer, I mean, think about it. All suffering raises numerous questions. Why? How? Why now? Why not them? Why? All kinds of questions that, that, that you can't answer, but, but suffering brings about these questions. And I, I can't imagine seeing a young child like this suffer, right? When, it, when it's children, why? And in the midst of these circumstances, in the midst of these situations of personal suffering, it's here that Jesus promises all things are possible for him who believes. It's in our weakness that God often delights to show his power. I mean, that, that is, that's how it works. It's, it's the weak faith of this father that leads to the mighty power of God being put on display in the midst of great suffering. You see, it, the faith is weak, but it's weak faith that leads to the display of God's power. And we will see for the father that the power of God, it leads to healing. The son is healed. That's good news. It's a happy ending. And for some of you, that, that can be the case. Miraculous healing. Amazing. And we, we, we continue as a church to pray for those. If, if you're experiencing suffering, disease, aching, we, we pray for God to work. We pray for miraculous healing. But, but sometimes, actually in most times, the suffering isn't relieved. Right? That's the world we live in. Most times it, it doesn't end with miraculous healing. Sometimes the child dies. Sometimes the disease isn't healed. Right? That, that's the reality of the world we live in. In fact, just yesterday, I, I heard about a 34-year-old man named Nabil Qureshi. Qureshi. And just yesterday, it might have been last night, it might have been yesterday afternoon, but, th- but this man, this 34-year-old man, lost his battle with stomach cancer, so he died. He, he knew he'd had the disease for a long time, but he died yesterday. Well, what you need to know about Nabil is that he was a devout Muslim who, who came over, I, I believe from Pakistan with his family. He was a devout Muslim who got involved in a Bible study and was, was miraculously converted to, to Christ. And so he was, he was transformed, and, and, and his life then began to, to, to be all about evangelism and, and, and talking and dialoguing with Muslims about the Christian faith because he found reality, he found truth, he found love, he found hope in Christ, in the gospel. And then he, he dedicated his life to, to telling other Muslims about it. And so he was a partner with, with Ravi Zacharias. Maybe you've heard of Ravi Zacharias, but, but he was one of, of the leadership team of Ravi Zacharias Ministries. So he traveled the world. He wrote books. In fact, our library has one of his books called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Okay, and it's his, it's his testimony of coming to faith. But, but so he, he has this miraculous conversion, and then his life is used powerfully. He's a man of great faith, but the reality is his faith wasn't met with miraculous healing. Instead, he died. He died. Cancer took his body. It, it ate him away, and his body died. It couldn't, couldn't hold up anymore. He died yesterday. And Nabil's faith in the midst of suffering was a great display of the power of God in him. It didn't end in healing, but it was still a display of the power of God. I mean, he prayed for healing. He, hundreds of thousands of others prayed for his healing, but God didn't heal him. But he could say in the midst of his suffering with full faith that 
God was for him. He knew that God is for me. God loves me. God is with me in my suffering. And that's his testimony in the midst of great suffering. His faith is firm. And it recognized that all things are possible, that God could have healed him. It's not as though God failed. God could have, but God decided not to. And so even when personal suffering ends, in the worst case scenario, it's not as though God has failed. It's, it's faith in the midst of those times. Faith when it's at its weakest, that God's power is seen to be the strongest. The sustaining grace of God in the midst of great suffering has very powerful effects on a watching world. And so faith in the midst of personal suffering. Let, let's, let's move on to, to the third, third section, verses 25 through 27. After the dialogue with the boy's father, Jesus does what the, the boy came, or what the father came seeking. So verse 25, he sees the crowd coming. He rebukes the unclean spirit, and he says, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. So he speaks the word, verse 26, and after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. So... So Jesus sees the boy, he comes, he commands the, the spirit never to leave and never come back, and the evil spirit obeys. It convulses the boy terribly, then it's gone. Now there, there's a, a bit of a, a hesitation, because after that happens, Mark says that, that this boy was on the ground like a corpse, still, silent. So, so those watching, maybe even the father, are thinking, well, things just got a lot worse. He, he's died. Some are even saying he's dead. They're afraid that, that this bad situation has just taken a turn for the worse. The worst case scenario has just happened. So he's laying there silently. But then verse 20, 27, sorry, verse 27, Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. Dead, lifeless man, boy on the ground, Jesus reaches down, lifts him up. Life. Moving, no demon. Think about it. He can hear. He, he's not mute, any, not deaf anymore. He can speak. He's free. And in fact, this language that Mark uses here, it, it, it actually, when he says that, that, that Jesus lifted him up, that, that's the word, the same word where, where it's used of Jesus being resurrected. And so Mark is literally saying, Jesus resurrected him. And so we see even here, there's a foretaste of, of the resurrection power that Jesus has. We'll see more about that later in, in Mark's gospel. But Jesus raises this boy. Mark doesn't tell us anything else about the boy, his father. Instead, he shifts focus back on the disciples, which is why I think there's a main point. Look there at verse 28 and 29. That, that scene, the public setting, it's gone. Now we transition, screenshot, different, different setting. Now it's a quiet house where it's just Jesus and the disciples. Crowds are gone. And they enter the house, and his disciples ask him privately, why could we not cast it out? I mean, one commentator says, to their credit, the disciples were eager to learn from their mistakes. Right? I mean, that, that's something to be commendable. They want to know, well, why couldn't we do it? They didn't ignore their failure. They didn't want to just shove it under the rug. They recognized that they had failed. And so when they're alone with Jesus, when they can talk with him free, they say, well, why couldn't we help? Why couldn't we cast that demon out? Now, it's not clear if they're asking did we not say the right things? Did, did we not use the right words? Was this demon too powerful for us? That, we don't know what's behind their question, why they couldn't do it. They want to know why they couldn't, couldn't do it. And Jesus says, verse 29, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So we don't know why they couldn't. We don't know why they were thinking they couldn't, but Jesus says very plainly, you couldn't do it because you didn't pray. I mean, that, that's straightforward. So whatever they had done, they hadn't prayed. Now, that may sound ridiculous, right? To the disciples of Jesus, they, they'd attempted to exercise a demon without prayer. I mean, seriously? 
I think that's exactly the case. The whole theme of the passage is lack of faith, right? Faith is, is the focus here. And so now, Jesus is saying you didn't pray. And he's not shifting the discussion away from faith now to prayer. So, okay, we've got two lessons here. No, prayer and faith are connected. The disciples are, are the faithless ones, and their faithlessness is seen. And they, they're trying to do this, cast out a demon, without prayer. Prayer is the overflow of faith. Man, I think that's the point. I think that's, what, that's why Jesus addresses prayer. I think by addressing prayer, he gets the fundamental, the root issue, and that's you don't have faith because you weren't praying. Prayer is a mark of dependence. The fact that they didn't pray proves that they were faithless. Prayer is a mark of a believing disciple, right? A dependent prayer life is a mark of a believing disciple, especially when those disciples are aiming to carry out. Remember, they're, they're trying to do what they've seen Jesus do. They're trying to further the ministry of Jesus, carry on the ministry of Jesus. A, a supernatural ministry that they've seen and taken part in. Well, now they're trying to do it apart from the help of God. And so they, just, they attempted to cast out a demon apart from depending on God. They're operating from their own self-sufficiency. I mean, even their question, why couldn't we do it? That's the problem. You were trying to do it. Jesus says very simply, you couldn't do it because you didn't pray. You didn't know your dependence on God. You didn't have faith that God could do it. You thought that you could do it apart from God. So you see that? That's their lack of prayer shows a lack of faith. You see that? That's, that's what I think he's, he's pointing to. So I think the point of the passage is that faithful, faithlessness always leads to failure. And the flip side, any faith, even weak faith, is capable of of accomplishing anything, not because of the faith, but because of the one in whom the faith is in. And so let me close with three quick, yeah, three. I got three closing applications. First, being a disciple requires faith. Being a disciple requires faith. I mean, these disciples, pretty soon, Jesus is going to be crucified, buried, and ascended into heaven. They're going to watch him go into the clouds, and they're going to think, uh-oh, we're all alone, right? That, the, the ministry of Jesus is going to rest on them. Thankfully, Jesus sends his spirit, which, which is the game changer. But at this point, he's teaching them, if you're going to carry on my ministry, you have to do so depending on God. I mean, that's, that, Jesus' life is that of dependence on God, isn't it? I don't do anything but what he tells me to do. I do nothing of my own accord. He is a life of dependence. He is the example of faith. He's the par, example par excellence of a faith-lived life. So they have to carry out their ministry in dependence on God. They, they must fight self-sufficiency. The same is true for every Christian here today. If you're a follower of Christ, you're called to carry out your ministry to live your life in dependence on God. Now, I'm not talking about formal ministry here. I'm not talking about your committee, uh, your committees that you're part of or, or, or any other thing. I'm, I'm talking about your life. Where you live, you are called to ministry. Your mother, your father, an employee, your friend, a football player, a co-worker, in all these situations, you are where you are for a purpose. God has given you opportunities to minister. And that, that's why you live where you are. That's why you do what you do, to minister on his behalf, to, to continue the work of Jesus. You're a minister. I'm a minister. And as such, we must carry out our ministry in dependence on God, unlike the disciples here. I mean, maybe you think your ministry is impossible. So I think about my wife, who's, who's home with my three kids. I'm with them for a couple hours, and I'm losing my head. Come home, please. I can't take it anymore. Right? So if I'm a stay-at-home mom, 
and I have my kids, maybe yours are the same, but ministry could seem really impossible. So maybe that's you. Maybe it's an I stay at home mom. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's you think your ministry is impossible. Maybe you think it's too hard. Well, you need to hear the message from Mark 9, 23. All things are possible for the one who believes. God can help you fulfill your ministry you, when you do so in dependence on him. It's when you start forgetting him that it's unbearable. Right? But in dependence on him, you can do it. All things, whatever he's called you to. Secondly, the faith of disciples varies. I, I didn't know whether to use varies or fluctuates, but the faith of disciples varies. And, and that's simply saying there's a place for struggling faith and clinging faith and resting pl- faith. There, there's, different, there's different levels of faith among Christians. D.L. Moody once said these three kinds of faith are like a man who's, who's in deep water desperately swimming. So that's like that's struggling faith. Or he said clinging faith is like the man who's just hanging on the side of the boat. He said there's a resting faith, which is like the man safely in the boat. who's able to reach out and help others in. But, but all three of these are, are valid faith experiences. It fluctuates. The man here had weak faith, struggling faith. He was on the brink. Maybe, that, maybe that's true for you. Maybe you're going through things. Maybe your life has, has dealt you a rough hand, and, and you're thinking, I can't do this anymore. I can't. That's okay, right? Cry out with, with the Father, help my unbelief. God is pleased to answer that cry. And so faith of disciples fluctuates. Even in our passage, struggling faith is enough. So hang on. Persevere. Hold fast. Struggling faith looks to God who can do all things. It's not about the level of your faith. It's about the God who you look to. It's about the God you have faith in. And then lastly, for the disciple, prayer is the partner of faith. A disciple who doesn't pray is a disciple who doesn't have faith. I think I can say that as point blank as that, as clear as that. A disciple who doesn't pray is a disciple who doesn't have faith. The great church father Augustine said, where faith fails, prayer perishes. For who prays for that in which he does not believe? So then, in order that we may pray, let us believe. And let us pray that this same faith by which we pray may not falter. So you see this relationship? Pray to believe and believe to pray. Right? There's this, this relationship between prayer and faith. They're inseparable. And at the end of the day, a life of faith is a life of prayer, a life depending on God to give you grace and strength to get through the day. And that's exactly what the disciples were missing. They didn't know their dependence, therefore they didn't pray. Good news for us this morning, Jesus patiently deals with the disciples' failures. Now, he's patient with them. Over and over again, he, he's, he's gentle with their lack of faith, with their struggling faith. And so by the time Jesus leaves them and sends his spirit, after his death, resurrection, and sending of his spirit, the disciples get it. They do. They, they still struggle, but they know their need for divine aid. And so, so my hope, may we be a church full of men and women who, who know our need for divine aid. May we be men and women dedicated to prayer, dependent prayer. Let's, let's pray. Father, I ask that you would grant faith to those here who don't have faith. Would you open their eyes to see the glories of of the gospel for those who are struggling with faith? Would you strengthen their faith? Would Would you hold fast to them so that they might hold fast to you? Those whose faith is failing, would you strengthen? And those who are strong in their faith, would you sustain that confidence? 